Welcome to uh, another chat uh, with myself and uh, and a guest. I'm very pleased to say uh, today uh, I'm going to be chatting uh, to uh, Brian uh, of the uh, Adam Smith Centre, Brian Chang, um, who uh, is someone that I know personally well. I'm a donor to the Adam Smith Centre um, as someone that really believes in the values of uh, free market ideas and the importance of keeping them relevant um uh during these times um you know on, on my side um kind of with a uk hat on i have sort of uh, lived in singapore for 14 years and and, and been slightly puzzled by the ever expand expanding expansion uh, of the of the state in the uk and um you know have uh, found myself living in singapore and and i've been very impressed really with you know what singapore's done uh, obviously over the years and you know, I put a lot of that down to their, you know, sort of embrace of free markets, and I think that's really important. And um, uh, the Adam Smith Centre in Singapore is one that really focuses on trying to, you know, share these ideas with with young people, with students. Obviously, my eldest daughter is seventeen, you know, and I'd I'd like her to get exposed to these ideas and people her age. And that was why I chose to sort of become a donor to the Adam Smith Centre. Um, Brian, uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks, George, for having me. Pleasure. I mean, I did a little summary there of, you know, what you guys do at the Adam Smith Centre, but I think no. it might be valuable to, uh, to let you, you know, actually, you know, from the horse's mouth, tell mm -hmm. us, you know, what you guys do. Thank you. So basically, the Adam Smith Centre, we are founded almost about two years now. So we are a non-profit organisation. We are the first of its kind in Singapore. We are the only, in fact, the first and only organisation promoting values relating to competition, limited government and markets because these are so important values today historically speaking but even more now so than ever when we see you know as you have rightly pointed out expanding government powers around the world uh, government spending increasing across the board you know and shrinking civil liberties wherever we go so i think these ideas are very important but they're not represented well in the media they're not represented well in schools whereby academics and teachers they are you know giving a lot of ideas which are I would say anti-market and anti-capitalist. So I think that's a problem and we are trying to change it in the climate of opinion through our organization. Yeah, it's great work and I'm you know very pleased to support it. And and so, you know, I, I really want to have a chat with you today because you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, we've seen um, you know, vast swathes of the world um be yeah. put under lockdown. We've seen um, governments uh, take controls over control over their citizens in a way that we've you know not experienced in our lifetime certainly um, and even our parents' lifetimes in truth and so we we sit here today um, looking at huge amounts of sort of government support that's gone in to support the economies to counterbalance the um, the measures that they've put in place um, and a kind of ever expanding state um, you know ac across the globe. Um, Obviously, reasons for that, um, you know, they vary a bit, but to protect the healthcare services on a pandemic that people didn't really understand, you know, it was perfectly um, reasonable, I think. But um, uh, it's uh, easy to make people scared. Um, it's less easy to give back those freedoms, um, uh, I, uh, I believe. And it will be very interesting to see as we move forward how governments um, 
pull back their newly found sort of power and autonomy and how that relates to, 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 to financial markets on my side and, and the economy um, as a whole. Um, uh, I, and I'd really love to, you know, to hear your thoughts on, on, on how you see this playing out. Right. So I think you are absolutely right. I see this pandemic as, a, as an opportune moment for governments to really expand their power. You know, uh, there is a great book called Crisis and Leviathan by Robert Hicks, which goes through the history of expanding government powers. And it shows that during emergency periods like natural disasters or disease outbreaks, this is where governments, you know, try to increase their control in society, in economic policy, social policy, and even just the surveillance of, of, of people. So I think as you rightly pointed out, it's, uh, it's something we should be concerned about from a public health perspective. But at the same time, we should also be very cautious about the kind of policies that governments say they need to impose, you know, on the pretext of protecting people and, you know, protecting our livelihoods. I think it's very important for us to think critically about these issues. Yeah, and then if you're the government now, you know, I'm just saying government sort of generally, really, because, you know, they've all sort of gone down the same path, really, to different extents. And, you know, we've seen deficits of spending just increase, um, the spending deficit, GDP drop. Um, The the UK is in a, you know, remarkable situation at the moment where kind of over... um, 50% 50% of people, I believe, are currently being paid for by the state. And that's a, um, uh, an alarming statistic. Obviously, it's in theory meant to be short-term. The furlough scheme um, you know, is meant to be a short-term thing. But once people get used to being paid for by the state, how, how do you pull that back? And how do you manage your electorate on that basis? I mean, I, I don't know what thoughts you've got on, you know, on those schemes. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, I think these schemes, you know, it's very popular around the world. Now, it's not just in the UK. Uh, you know, in the United States, they have what they call the Paycheck Protection Program, right? In Singapore, we have this thing called the Job Support Scheme, which actually goes all the way up to 70 to 75% of, of wages, right? Across all the sectors, in fact, I think just in the month of May, all companies uh, in Singapore were allowed to, to receive this. So basically, all wages in Singapore in the month of May were covered 70% by the state. So I yeah. think, um, you know, the problem is that this obviously expands government budgets and expenditures. It is definitely not sustainable. And the more we do it, the more we're going to see, you know, debt accumulation, deficit spending, uh, you know, going bonkers, obviously. But I think the problem now is that many people think that this is justified because this is supposedly some emergency situation. And so, you know, like the usual cause of, you know, controlling budgets now somehow just goes out the window. Right, but obviously the problem is that even if you know in a temporary period there may be a short-term necessity for government to spend money, the question is always: Do they have an incentive to stop spending once the crisis is over? Right. So the problem is that many times governments spend not because they have to, but because they can, right? Over you know a, a long period of time. So that's the danger. But interestingly, we see in Singapore it's a bit different. Because a lot of the spending in Singapore we see is financed not really through deficits or through borrowing or higher taxes, but through the reserves that the Singapore government has accumulated over the years. So I think in Singapore, you know, we have a bit more leeway to spend these huge sums of money. But of course, you know, if, uh, if we are not careful, we might also become reckless in the way we spend and go down the path that many Western European nations have gone down. And I think that's a danger. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And I think that 
you know, there, there are, uh, the furlough concept is obviously, you know, uh, has been used by a number of governments in different, you know, using it in, in, in different sort of different words. Obviously different countries have, you know, d different views on these things. So while you're correct saying Singapore, 75% um, of wages have been paid um, over the last two months, noticeably they are um, restricted to Singaporeans and PRs. So anyone outside of that bracket, you know, within the business perspective, they haven't benefited or the company hasn't benefited um, from that. Um, I always, um, I, I always think a bit about how it would be in the UK if they had done the same thing and, and the negative reaction that would have about residents. You know, different countries have very different views on, 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 the, uh, on their sort of non-nationals. Um, and obviously in the UK, I think that sort of, uh, that excluding non-Brits that are working in the UK from a system would probably go down badly, but has also created a bigger problem for the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I think also the way in which the UK has sadly sidestepped the uh, employer. So employees are now getting paid directly from the state rather than being paid for by their company still and, and, and the company claiming from the government. That big disconnection from, from, from your employer is a problem, I think. And one, it will mean that you know, the guys can't, or girls can't keep working um, because if you take the furlough, you're not meant to work. Whereas in Singapore, they're helping to pay the salaries to keep you working. And if you stop right. working and companies work out how efficient they can be maybe without you, you're suddenly, you know, the government sort of maybe feels like it's done you a favour, um, but maybe actually has not. And I think that's quite interesting. Um, I think also is the bit that you, you know, that you point towards, whereas, you know, this concept of the state paying for everything, while, while you say it's not sustainable, and I believe it's not sustainable, there are those that would argue that it is and that this um financial policy that's being implemented now um should not be stopped as a result of things easing um on the covid situation but they should now become staples of how a, you know a government should should be run i, f I forget the, t the term actually uh, brian what's it called again the mo modern Monetary. Monetary theory, yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, I'd love to get your thoughts on that, you know, and, and, and maybe explain a bit of what it is and maybe explain why it may not be quite as sustainable or, or desirable as some people might lead you to believe. So basically, this is a new uh, school of thought in macroeconomics. I, I will not bore your listeners with the technical details, but basically, you know, it, it's just a new way of saying that governments can and should, uh, you know, increase the money supply, basically, increase the money supply, inject credit and liquidity into the monetary system in order to stimulate the economy. So if you look at it this way, it's actually nothing new because governments have been doing this for centuries, right? In fact, I think the key thing to note here is that almost all of the financial crisis and economic crisis we see in history can be traced back down to this action, right? It can be traced back down to either actions of rulers, or monetary authorities, most likely central banks, whereby they would artificially inject credit and liquidity into the economy, which would you know, reduce interest rates, and this would lead to investments, asset bubbles in certain sectors which we shouldn't be seeing, and inevitably leads to bus, right? So the boom-bust cycle, you know, contrary to what some maybe Marxists or Keynesians say, Right, it's yes, it's a, it's a natural part of the business, it's a na natural part of the economy, 
but it's usually exacerbated by these actions by rulers and central banks. So even though some may say this is justified you know, as a way to prop up banks, to prop up the, you know, the consumption and the investment spending in the economy, right? it's not sustainable because it's fueling a lot of investments into certain sectors which should not necessarily be there because it's not backed up by real customer demand. It's not backed up by real savings on the part of the economy. And at a certain point, there's going to be a disjuncture, right? Where people realize that these bubbles are too good to be true. And that's where, you know, a bust phase ensues, which always happens if you look at various financial crises around the world. So this is not even looking at the inflation that it, ha- that, you know, bring- that it brings about and how this erodes even the purchasing power, the savings, you know, of ordinary people. More power to central banks, less power to people. Yeah, I agree completely, and I think it's something that you know people should be very aware of um, and 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 take an interest in. Although I, I would suggest it's not something that that ever gets sort of critically analysed um, in the media. To, to be honest, um, as you say, it does create um, boom cycles, and so you know those boom cycles have been seen in the equity markets and property markets since the GFC. Um, sort of 12 years or so ago, um, and that's you know that, that that's generally quite good news for, um, yeah. uh, for, for, for for a large number of people that are that are invested uh, in markets. They're enjoying that um, that rise, but is problematic, um, particularly for the younger generation um, who feel that these asset bubbles are continue to reward people um, other than themselves. And I think that's actually quite dangerous. Right. And I think what's especially dangerous about this is that the effects of this, you know, is not usually seen in the short term, right? If let's say governments increase taxes, you know, it's more unpopular because the increase of taxes will hit people now. So people may tend to go against it. But when you engage in inflationary measures, this is actually a hidden tax, right? Which, uh, which maybe only erodes people's livelihoods now by a very small extent, but the full effects of this will be seen, you know, like few generations down the road. So this creates a very skewed incentive for politicians and central banks to do more of this now because they, they don't necessarily suffer the consequences because it happens only, you know, years down the road. Yeah, so it doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, so I always think that about um, heads of central bank. They often get kind of applauded for their tenure during um, their time as head of the central bank. Um, but I think the applause should be waited um, until maybe a 10-year cycle has gone through and we can actually retrospectively look on the impact of their tenure on the medium to longer term uh, of the economy, actually. And I don't think the central banks right. is a short-term game um, at all, actually. And then so, you know, that's the, that's the arguments against, you know, just the, the government being involved and, you know, spending, you know, sort of never-ending amounts of money that they don't have. Um, but it's not, I, I would suggest that the appetite, you know, more, more broadly, just, just, you know, across the media that gets consumed is for this to kind of stay. It's not critically analyzed. People don't seem to be questioning, um, uh, the, the effects that, right. uh, that, that this will have on the economy in a, in a longer term, uh, on a longer term basis. And, um, I, I, I'd love to get your thoughts, kind of understand on, you know, how do you think different countries or areas will, in, you know, we'll, we'll tackle this challenge of either, you know, trying to pull back this state aid, accepting some short-term pain for a more stable long-term economy, or those that will just continue to try and please people and keep spending the money. 
Yeah, I think you have made some good points there. I think one of the problems, especially with this topic of monetary policy, is that it tends to be a bit more of very technical-driven, very esoteric topic. It's definitely much more difficult to understand for an ordinary person than taxes, than giving out government grants. So because of that, I think there is very little scrutiny on this. You are right. And also when the media tries to talk about it, they will also interview the same experts again and again. Right? And a lot of these experts, they are trained in the same school of thought. They, they have received the same orthodoxy that they may have received from the universities they come from, which generally is very Keynesian, you know, and has a very anti-market stance, which is why they would favor, you know, government's budget uh, deficits, deficit financing, as well as this, you know, um, engagement of increasing uh, monetary inflation, especially in, in the you know, in society. So, so I think this is uh, is definitely uh, very bad, you know. And how do I see this happening around in the world? Uh, I, I'm definitely quite pessimistic in the short term, uh, even though I may be more optimistic in the long term. Uh, because, you know, if you look at the political incentives, you know, uh, in the UK, uh, in the United States, uh, politicians usually look at things in the short term. They have electorates to please. Um, you know, they want to have political capital in the short term. Especially now in a pandemic era, the incentives of politicians are even more short term than they are than it already is, you know, before the pandemic, right? So politicians always have an incentive to say, I want to do something now to cure some problem now. So because there's anything that they try to, to, to claim, which is, you know, for the benefit of the people, I'm doing something, it's going to be fair game. So especially during election season, as you look, you know, in the United States right now, which is what people call the political business cycle. It's not just the economic business cycle. Before elections, that's where spending increases, that's where inflation increases rapidly. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this in the short term, in the next one to two years' time. Yeah, interesting. And obviously all eyes on America for the end of the year. And I think that... Um, sorry, I just have to turn my phone off. The, um, I think that there's a... Um, uh, I think that when, when you were talking about how governments kind of react to work on the short term, um, you know, try and please um, the electorate. Obviously, the the most sort of start. I mean, it's happened time and time again. You know, we've seen um, countries just be annihilated, unfortunately, um, through these policies, through you know, um, never-ending government expenditure, um, governments taking over the means of production. This is a recurring negative outcome to these ideas. And what I find fascinating is that they still. Um, are very popular because it's obviously very appealing emotionally. And again, probably the most recent example of it going wrong is, is Venezuela, a enormously oil rich That's nation, right. which is now, you know, in such a sad place. Um, but again, there seems to be very little focus on looking at that as a potential outcome for this sort of never ending spending and, and, and how a sort of government can, can, can look to be doing good things that feel good, but can have rather terrible outcomes. And, I, I do think it's incumbent on, you know, on, 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 on journalists to, to explain, you know, the potential side effects of, of these policies that people are enjoying at the moment. I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the problems that people uh, can't get is to see the role that markets play, you know, in crisis situations. Because in a crisis situation, maybe after a natural disaster or in pandemic, everyone thinks that in such a situation, we need a strong ruler, right? We need a government to be very tough, 
to do all these things, locking down society, spending money, giving out grants, you know, imposing a curfew and all these things. But they don't realize that actually there are a lot of contributions that markets can provide even in such situations. And I think journalists and academics and intellectuals should discuss more on this. And let me just give you some quick examples here. I think one of the key things is really the role that innovation can play. Right? If you think about a pandemic, we need innovation, medical innovation, technological innovation, innovation to create vaccines quickly, innovation to create therapeutics quickly, innovation to create testing capabilities and improve it quickly because with more testing, we're able to isolate patients and get back to life as usual. But if you look at what happened in the United States, right, they have no excuse to say that, you know, it's, you know, uh, that governments need to do more because government was the problem. Right at the very beginning of the outbreak, because if you look at the Food Drug Administration the (FDA), um, you know a lot of rules and legislations were there, which didn't need to be there, and this actually prolonged the rollout of testing, and the rollout of many, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, medical supplies, you know, to the states. So yeah. governments were too slow in responding, and there was a lot of red tape there. So innovation is one area that actually markets can play a big role in, especially in such situations. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. I mean, there's a bet noir of mine, which is Public Health England, um, which is also um, just sort of um, being a good example of um, sort of a bureaucratic, expensive organisation um, that has not necessarily aided or helped um, the speed at which people can react or companies can react to, um, to the situation, be innovative, and also roll things out to, um, to the general population. I think also that you, you know you, you raise a really interesting point on on on, on innovation and how um, companies can react and move very quickly. I think there's pretty good you know, and it's it's very interesting that before the lockdown, most companies or a large number of companies had recognised there was a situation going on. They'd encourage people to work from home. They'd automatically moved into split teams and all the different ways in which we're all working now. And that had been done without government edict. That had been done on the basis of companies recognising they. Right. It's a problem, there's a threat, how do we adapt to that? Um, you know, if we look at how the economy is going at the moment, obviously certain things are hit terribly, um, but other areas are not and have, you know, adapted and changed. When we look at retail as well, I find that a fascinating area. You've had all this commercial property space filled with very large department stores. You know, does that mean they disappear? Probably not, but it doesn't mean that your shopping experience might change. Absolutely, you know, you go into uh, a large shop and rather than have all the gear there, you can look at a wonderfully interactive screen, get someone to help you, choose your stuff, try on a one pair that's universally the same, and have it all delivered to your house in the afternoon. You know, things will change, things will adapt. And, um, you know, I'm, 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 I, I'm with you in the short term. I do, I do worry um, about the, the way in which um, and I say this really with a UK hat on, I suppose, because I'm British and um, it's, uh, you know, how, 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 how quickly um, the population's been to accept these measures sort of unquestioningly, how unquestioning the media's been about them and basically just said they're not good enough. And no real talk about the economy, the good stories of it and, and how it can progress and what we can learn and how the country can move forward positively ahead. And I, I find that really, really a bit, you know, disappointing. And I'm really hoping that some countries you know, embrace these, um, the idea of letting businesses just get on with it um, and, 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 and government aid stepping aside because I think they'll do very well longer term, um, personally. I think, I think you are absolutely right. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned what's happening in the United Kingdom 
you know, I think it, it, it bends to explain a little bit on what really happened in the early stages of the UK and how the policy in the UK actually influenced the rest of the world, actually. You know, yeah. so uh, I have to say that, you know, I'm of the opinion that the lockdown policy is a bad idea and it's a, it's, it, has, it has been an overreaction to the problem. And let me just, you know, share something rather, I think, discomforting to your listeners, if I may, which yeah, is that sure. if you think about the pandemics in history, you know, there were two very severe ones. There was a Spanish flu, which is like with a mortality of more than 10, 20 times that of what we have today. Even 100 times, I think, right? That's a Spanish flu. And yeah. even in 1957, there was what they call the Asian flu crisis. In the aftermath of both these crises, the economic fallout from, from those two events has been nowhere near what we have witnessed this time around in 2020, if you look at the measurements. And in fact, the key difference is that in those uh, occasions in 1918 and also in 1957, the governments did not actually pursue lockdowns the way that we did today. Even, even though the, 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 the disease was actually more severe and more infectious at the time. Right? So, which means that what we have today in terms of the economic fallout, the unemployment rate, the job losses, the business closures, is a direct result not of the disease spreading, it's a direct result of actually the government closing down the economy. Because this is actually what's different from what we had in the past. Right? Yes. And, 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 and that is the problem that we need to look into. It's, it's not the disease itself, it's the overreaction to the disease that's caused the economic problems. So the faster we get people back to work, the faster we open up the economy, I think that's actually what we need. Yes, and I, I think people, you know, I think, you know, genuinely people kind of understand that actually. And I hope that that is where we get to in the next stage. You know, we're talking here mid-June. We'd hope that, you know, as we sort of look back in maybe a couple of months time in August, that, you know, there's been quite a significant reopening globally of the economy, people, you know, going back to work. Um, and things can march forwards rather than being kind of paused in this hiatus that we've all been in. Um, there's another thing I'd like to raise with you a bit, I suppose, is this, um, is, is, is this idea of um, this is a pandemic of confirmation bias. So if you speak to anybody that has a specific view, so myself, yourself, kind of free market side, other people that want to have an expanding state, um, it seems to be this pandemic has, has the, the universal thing about the pandemic and the illness is it's basically managed to make everybody that had a pre, uh, pre preconceived idea, it's affirmed their view. And those views could be completely contrary to each other, but people can use the kind of situation in which they say, oh, well, you know, the failings of the free market resulted in you know, healthcare not being adequate to deal with the right. crisis. Uh, and vice versa, you know, the meddling bureaucracy of governments involved in healthcare, et cetera. So there's two sides of each coin. So it is going to be a debate moving forward. I mean, how would you um, argue the point that we're not just sort of, you know, I'm singing to the choir with you when we're you know, both of that mindset. And so obviously we think this way, you know, how would you counter that suggestion? I think that's a, I think that's a great question. Um, it's true. I think human beings, you always have confirmation bias and we try to spin and interpret events, you know, to fit our own ideology. But that does not mean that there is no some form of objective standards you know, that we can use to understand events, to research on what's happening, and even to come up with sound policies that are evidence-based, right? In fact, let yes. me just point out to the, to the whole case of the research that led to the UK locking down, which led to the US locking down and leading to the entire world locking down. We need to understand what happened with the Imperial College London model 
propounded by this epidemiologist. In fact, I think he was just a modeler. Uh, his name is Neil Ferguson. Some of your listeners yeah. may know him. You know, um, so what happened is not only were the, uh, were the research that he, that he gave not really peer-reviewed, it was just a working paper. It was very hypothetical at a point in time, right? But if you look at how, you know, the, the assumptions in this model was very flawed, you know, they basically assumed that, you know, um, the, the, the virus is going to enter the populace. It's just going to spread, you know, as if it's just come for the first time and people, corporations, people, and even governments would do nothing to adjust to that. You know, the model basically accounted for no behavioral adaptation, right? Because there was no behavioral adaptation uh, fit into the model. They predicted 500 plus thousand people dying in the UK, 2 million plus people in the US dying immediately, right? So it has, it has since been criticized. Uh, many people have criticized this, pushed back against it, you know, but still it was adopted by governments, right? So I think even in this age of fake news and what they call post-truth, some standards of truth must still apply. Some, yeah. you know, checks and balances must still apply. But unfortunately, they were not applied, you know, when it comes to the most important decision that governments had to make, you know, which led us to the unfortunate situation that we are in now today. Yeah, that's a, I like that, actually. I think that's a... Um... I think the idea that, you know, and again, you know, lessons learned rather than looking backwards and being critical, you know, it's easy hindsight, but I do hope that this encourages, uh, you know, the outcomes from this and, and, and exploring how we ended up here um, will create a, a, a more open debate based on, you know, uh, more uh, information rather than feeling uh, on, 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 on how it transpired and what we can learn from those things. And I think that, you know, in the UK, it's... Um, a lot of it stems back from the, you know, what we call the mad cow disease crisis, in which um, I think famously the um, one of the ministers was asked about how safe UK meat, and so he said, "Oh, it's fine," and he, he stuffed the burger in his daughter's mouth, um, right. and that caused no end of um, outrage. And and then it was pretty clear that then politicians in these situations just wanted to defer to scientists. And again, this is fascinating to me because it's a complete lack of understanding of, what a, you know, of science. You know, the concept of settled science is bananas, obviously. It's a continually questioning um, uh, 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 sort of um, uh, area. You know, nothing settled. The whole point is to continue to question. And so for Neil Ferguson, who I believe, you know, has been somewhat scapegoated by politicians rather conveniently in that, yes, his paper, I think, you know, when we look back was... Was, 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 was not right. But that's, that's no different from his papers on, I believe, SARS or any of the other issues that happened. Even Matt Cow disease, I believe, um, he was fairly off the mark. But it, yeah, as a scientist, it's his right to come up with ideas and state ideas. And, and the idea you see of governments then falling on, on, a, on, a, on a scientist that has a, you know, the, 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 who is a scientist, isn't meant to right. be leading public policy. And then just sort of deflecting onto him, I think, is, is such a cop-out, actually, of the UK. And and then, as you say, that, you know, again, you know, we're talking about pandemics and contagion, the contagion of that worst case scenario. Obviously, if you're a politician going, oh, my God, you know, this many people could die if I don't do anything, you know. And, 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 and so it's that's happened. And I think that, unfortunately, again, the debate is, is often been too polarizing on it. So it's, you know, if you're, you know, if you're for lockdown, you're one thing. If you're anti, you're another thing. It's like being a Democrat or a Republican or a pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit. And it's just, I wish there was more of this sort of nuanced debate, you know, and, 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 and not a, you're right, you're wrong, just a kind of concept of how do we learn and what do we, you know, what do we get exactly. from it? I, exactly. I, I, 
I hope that's what comes out of it and that um, that through that argument, you know, the concepts that maybe you and I believe in, um, in that, you know, lowering the regulation, having more of a kind of embrace of free markets and let the market kind of come up with the outcomes to create a new fascinating future for people, um, uh, you know, it, it wins the day rather than this um, uh, kind of uncritical acceptance of handing over, you know, so much power to, to, to governments. Um, and I hope that's the outcome. I, I don't know, do you think that will be the outcome or am I, you know, is that hope gonna be somewhat blighted? I think, I think, you, I think you raised some very good points. Um, to me, it's not just about giving too much power to governments, it's also giving too much power to experts, you know. Uh, experts who claim to know what's best and politicians who then uncritically embrace the advice of these experts. In fact, you know, if you could, uh, and you know, you know, I would recommend this book and if you, if you can get this guest, even for your interview, it's great. It's this book called Expert Failure by a scholar called Roger Koppel, K-O-P-P-L. So basically, you know, the whole idea of expert failure, which I think has been played out so obviously in this current crisis, is whereby, you know, experts have some kind of like a monopoly power, right? Whereby, you know, they, they are the ones that governments go to and they have all the power and they make pronouncements and everyone just listens to them, Right? So I think you, you have just rightly pointed it out there. If you think about how politicians in such a pressurizing situation, they call up the expert on the phone, you know, Neil Ferguson answers it, right? If he says, you know what, don't have a lockdown, and if something happens, the politician gets in trouble, you know, and the expert, you know, is, is fired or he loses his grant, right? So he yeah. has an incentive to go for the most precautionary, the most cautious approach, which is lockdown society. If it works out, you can say, hey, look, I lockdown society, you know, and that's the reason why we save lives. And if it doesn't work, you're just going to say, it would have been worse if we hadn't locked down society, right? So, so this is the dilemma that we have, right? Whereby, whereby experts in this very technocratic-driven society, we defer to them because they have all the science, they have all the statistics. But I think there's a lot of danger here, and I think you're right, we need to question this. So it's not just a government issue, it's about how we understand the role of scientists, the role of experts. And to just really have a lot more competition and ideas, right? Yeah. So I think it's having more think tanks, more journalists, more people speaking out. So we can have, I think, just greater comparison, you know, of, of various ideas, of various policy stances, right? And I think with competition and diversity of opinion, that's going to go a long ways in solving yeah. some of these. I agree. And that diversity of opinion is so important, I think. And, you know, it's good to have, you know, I have my views. It's good to be challenged by people that have other views and, you know, to question it. I mean, one of the great um, dilemmas um, for people, you know, like, like us, I suppose, the kind of anti this unlimited quantitative easing and reduction of interest rates from, you know, central banks in the West um, in particular, is that, you know, lessons learned from history is that there will be inflationary, um, you know, through potentially the way in which we manage or measure inflation in a slightly different way um, or, or, or not that Armageddon moment, you know, that we all have memories from Europe of the Weimar Republic and what happened there, that hasn't quite yet played out. Um, and so, you know, that's interesting. That's an interesting challenge. And, and I think that's something that needs to be debated a bit as well. You know, that, I don't know if you have any thoughts on actually that kind of inflationary situation. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's dangerous. I'm, I'm not sure what, what you meant by that. But yes, I, I think it's, it's, it's totally right. We, we just need more, more discussion on this. Um, and I think a lot of it really starts from the, 
uh, from the academic institutions really. We need to start questioning about the role that institutions play, um, not just in the media, but also in, you know, uh, in the universities. Because of the power that they hold over society, over politicians, over the thought leaders that we have, and I think the more we start thinking about how to reform you know, the role that education plays, and I think that's where we're going to see more bottom-up ideas and more diversity of opinions bubbling up from the surface. And so I don't think this is a short-term gain. I think it's going to come a lot in the long term. You know, as more people try to start um, you know, alternatives and entrepreneurial ventures, you know, just like this show, you know, just like this interview you are doing, I think we need more of these things moving forward, yeah. I suppose. I agree. And I think that uh, just going back to what I was trying to say there, I think it's just that classic kind of, there is an assumption that with unlimited uh, printing of money and lowering interest rates will, con will transfer into a, a, an inflationary environment. And so yeah. most people in financial markets or following economic theory following 2008, 2009, have this great expectation that what we were going to see was a, 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 a dramatic inflationary moment that, 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 yeah. that would be a problem. Because, you know, throughout history, that's, that's what we see. Too much government intervention, printing of money, lowering of rates fundamentally moves into this inflationary danger. And the longer that that yes. danger hasn't happened, the, the, the more, I think, emboldened the concept is that you can just keep on printing money and reduce rates. And so I think that's the crux of an argument that I think is really important for people to have. I, I, think, I think you're right. Um, now, what is important for listeners to know is not just about what we may see in future, it's also what we have already seen. Okay. Yeah. So, so we need to look at you know the last one to two hundred years. In fact, I would say you know I think the best example is the birth of the Federal Reserve, which was in 1913, 1913. So it's more than hundred years now, right? In fact, you can say hundred and ten years plus, right? So since the the origins of the Federal Reserve, the United States dollar has lost you know more than ninety percent of its value since then, right? So if you look at the short term, you may not see the the dangerous effects, but if you look at over the his historical period, you see that, you know, uh, a value of money has gone down. There's been tremendous volatility in not just financial, but the real economy as well. So there are real effects which we, which we cannot turn a blind eye to, you know. And the effect is not just in, in the financial world, but how it creates some, you know, incentives for government to do spending. So if you look at the, the ballooning budget deficits of many countries, that can be traced back down, okay, to the, to the reckless uh, money printing and monetary policy of governments. So fiscal policy and monetary policy are connected to each other. Because yeah. if, if the governments have control over money, then they're just going to be able to, 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 you know, to print to, to cover the debts, basically. So there is a connection between fiscal and monetary, which, which we are already seeing today. Yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah, that's well explained, actually. I think that's a really good... Um, uh, I think that's a, I, I think that's a good way of looking at actually going back a bit further um, uh, in, in, in history to, to see those, you know, that the effects that this sort of policies had rather than, you know, what is still probably quite short term actually, you know, 12 years um, from the GFC and where, you know, where we stand today. I think that's really interesting. Again, I think that's the, the sort of debate that we, you know, that, that should be had now a bit is to, is to extraordinary things have happened, but you know, at a government level, and 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 they need to be critically analysed. And I hope they do. I hope that, and I hope that that people really get engaged with what's going on. And I think that's you know, and this topic and this chat that we've had is one of the main reasons um, why we um, are uh, 
you know, why I'm happy to have this chat with you and record the podcast with you, because I think that it's such a um, positive um, dialogue to have, because it is not one that's happening everywhere, sadly. I think that's a shame. Um, and by no means do we have the answers and hopefully just posing lots of questions to get to some answer. Um, that's right. And, that's right. Uh, we I need think, to have more discussion and debate on these things. Yeah. And I think, look, I think we'll, I'll leave it there, you know, for our chat now. I mean, I'd, I'd obviously like to take this up again because I think it would be really interesting to see from what we've discussed yes. today, wh where we look in say September, because that's right. everyone's done a similar policy, how they come out of those policies. Now that is absolutely that's uh, right. I think I will be very happy to speak with you again, especially comparing the different responses by different countries, right? So if yeah. you think about even Sweden, right, which has a more laid-back approach as compared to maybe the UK, which has a more, you know, command approach, right? I think this will be right for discussion, you know, in a couple of months to see which countries got it right, which countries maybe didn't really get it so right. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. I really enjoy that, actually. But um, so look, we'll leave it there for now. I think it's yeah, it's it's going to get very it's going to get very interesting. Look at these responses, and um, I, I really appreciate the time that you've given uh, to me today to go through this. And um, I will, um, yeah, very much look forward to having a chat to you again like this um, in September. So, Brian, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, George, for having me. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Cheers, buddy. Mm -hmm.